Good morning, Memphis, and Happy New Year. I am so excited about what this new year will bring. Thanks again for spending some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn more about their motivations, their inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So 2021 will certainly be a historic year, right? It's already shaping up to be a historic year. In just a few weeks, we will see the installment of the first woman VP. And this is but one example of the tremendous strides in gender equality that we've made. Uh, But at the same time, we've also seen backlash against women in leadership and enduring expectations of women to be caretakers, right? And this has been increasingly evident in mother's exit from the workforce to take on child-rearing duties during COVID. Um, So as we're entering 2021 and this kind of new political era with a woman in the White House as VP, I wanted to dive deeper into these ideas of gender equality. So to do so, joining me today, I have Dr. Brittany Dernberger. Dr. Dernberger is a sociologist who studies social inequality and mobility, examining who gets ahead in life and why, right? Such an important question. And her work has focused on gender, jobs, and economic inequality, and has been featured in outlets such as the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Miss Magazine. Dr. Dernberger currently works as a researcher at Insight Policy Research and is committed to leveraging research for social change. Welcome, Dr. Dernberger. How are you? Thank you. Happy New Year. I am delighted to be here. Yes, yes. We are so happy to have you. Happy New Year. How are you feeling? I am very excited for what 2021 has to bring. (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm sure we are all very hopeful to have, you know, maybe a different type of of year. a better year maybe, (laughs) Um, but we do know this year is definitely bringing some change, right? So as I mentioned, kind of in talk, kind of setting up our conversation for today, we do know for sure that one thing that's changing is we're going to have a woman vice president. So a woman in the White House as vice president, VP Kamala Harris. Uh, And this, you know, a, a very historic moment, a celebratory moment, and this seems to indicate kind of a shift in gender attitudes, maybe, or perceptions of women in in leadership. Is this true? Not true? What do, tell us what you know. Yes, I would say yes and no. Um, So, so yes, in the sense that I think with Vice President Harris coming in this year, I think about the fact that we are now 100 years into women and because of voter suppression laws, white women mostly, having the right to vote. You know, the 19th Amendment was passed and was ratified in 1920. And so for 100 years now, women have been able to participate in our political process through voting. Women have entered the workforce in really large numbers beginning in the 1970s. And while there are still really significant gender disparities, and we could talk about some of those in terms of pay equity and women in leadership, With those aside, overall, when we think about where we're at in history, women are increasingly breaking the glass ceiling 
in corporate roles in kind of the professional sphere, achieving those leadership opportunities. And as you said, Vice President Harris coming in in a few weeks is a great example of that. So in some ways, yes, I think there are many, many gender roles and attitudes that are changing and are, are more equitable than they have been historically. But what's interesting is, is that progression of attitudes is mostly in the public sphere. There has been much less change in the private sphere of home and, and family. So women still disproportionately take on most of the housework and childcare. And while there's been some increase over the years in men spending more time with their children, the division of labor at home is still very gendered and highly unequal. Mm, so I love this phrasing or the way you talked about it, where we see these um, differences of attitudes in the public sphere, but not so much in the private sphere, because I think if we look in the public, right, we do see this, you know, great celebration of women in a, in a variety of different roles that they haven't been in the past. And we might think that this translates into more um, egalitarian attitudes in the private sphere, or not even just in the private sphere, as you talked about family, but just behind closed doors, whether that's closed boardroom doors or those closed salary doors, um, you know, or what have you. So can you tell me more about how we see these differences, not just maybe in family, but in other arenas as well? Yes, I think the behind closed doors piece is so important. And I think about how these processes start from a very young age and go on and then filter into all those different spheres or all those different rooms you were just mentioning. So um, there's a sociologist, um, Dr. Yasmin Bezin Casino, who has this great book that recently came out called The Cost of Being a Girl that shows how the gender wage gap starts like at adolescence, where even as teenagers, you know, young women and young men have very different types of jobs. And then that just compounds throughout their lifetime. And I think about that uh, for myself. I remember when I was probably 12 or 13 and started babysitting neighbors for some extra money and realized that I was making like $5 or something an hour to watch multiple small children, the most precious, you know, humans uh, on the earth. Um, and I had friends who were guys who were mowing lawns and making like $20 an hour, you know, to like mow a lawn. And I remember just talking to my parents about that and being really incredulous. Like I am taking care of like literal humans, you know, making much less money than, than what someone's making mowing a lawn. And my parents' uh, answer to that was, well, you can mow lawns, um, you know, like you're not stuck babysitting, which I think, you know, was a fine answer and a good answer. But as a sociologist, I'm really interested in what are those structures and systems that set it up so that people who maintain our lawns are paid more than people taking care of our children? And what are the gendered implications of that? Since most often it's, it's men who are in, you know, in this case, lawn maintenance roles and women who are in childcare roles. Um, and what does it say about our society that we pay a premium for how our lawns look compared to people taking care of our most precious beings, you know, in terms of children? So I, I think that there's just this, this element that extends throughout the life course, really, in terms of how inequality plays out in so many different ways. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that example that you gave. Because even as you were talking and you were like, it was like, yes, all when I was growing up and at, you know, those early teen years, all of my girlfriends were definitely babysitting. Like that was the job to have or to do to get some of that extra cash. And you're absolutely right. All the boys had, you know, were mowing lawns or trying to mow lawns or doing some sort of kind of manual labor, right? Outside of the home. Um, And how do we even come up with these ideas of like, this is going to be my after school job, right? Like it just seems so quote unquote natural, which we know it's not really natural, but it's created, right? These pathways for our jobs or even our kind of summer jobs are created. Yes. It made me actually think of one of my summer jobs, which was I always worked at uh, my church's summer camp, which was a sleepaway camp. And so it was a bunch of teenagers, you know, working at this camp. But in the dining room, there were dining room girls like that's the, <laughs> that was what they were called. And they were all girls who would serve, um, you know, serve the people <laughs> or whatever. And then there were dishwashers who were all boys interesting we didn't call them dishwasher boys um so that's like a whole nother level of that kind of gendered aspect of it they were just dishwashers but they were all you know teenage guys right so again doing that behind the scenes more manual labor versus the girls who were doing the serving right in the service work yes and I, I think about how these ideas are ingrained in, in us from a very um, young age. And so some, some research that Dr. Joanna Pepin and I did looked at youth attitudes, because I think often we think about, oh, young people are our future. You know, they often have more progressive views than older generations. What do, what do they think about feminism and gender equity? And it was a depressing story um, in terms of what we found. So looking at what young people thought from the 1970s through current time, uh, we were looking at what they what they hoped for in their future families. Like, how do you divide up this labor? There's all this, you know, we need money because of our capitalist society. So some, somehow you need an income for your household. Someone needs to take care of the kids. Someone needs to take out the trash and do the dishes and all those household work. You know, if in a, in a world where you could kind of choose who, how you divided up that labor, what do people want? And over time, young people were more open to a variety of arrangements, but what they most wanted today, contemporary youth, high school seniors, was a husband who worked full time and a wife who stayed at home. And we looked at these results and we're just like, oh, <laughs> what, you know, what do we do with this? Because that's not what we expected. Um, and from a, from a kind of what we know perspective, often when people look at work and family issues, most conclusions have been the issue is institutional policies. So the reason we don't have gender equity in terms of work and family is because we don't have enough paid parental leave policies. We don't have pay equity uh, where women are women are paid the same as men in the workforce for similar jobs. Mm-hmm. All of these things that um, if we could change the policy, we would have gender equity has been the way of thinking. And what these findings showed was that that may not be the case. Like, yes, it's policy, but it's also these underlying attitudes about gender, mm-hmm. which I think are much um, 
can be much more difficult to think about how you how do you change attitudes and how do you kind of move people along to think about gender in a different way, especially as you were saying, it seems so it, it seems so natural. And I think on, on the surface, it doesn't seem so problematic, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, so the, you know, the, at your summer camp, like the girls were serving them the meal and the boys were doing the dishwashing, who cares? Like, why does that matter? But I think what we know from research is, is does that put people on very different trajectories that then have these outcomes later for their careers and their income? Um, and even things like, you know, later in life, social security. I mean, your income ties into your social security benefits down the road. So if women have lower income over their careers, they get less social security when they're older and trying to retire. So there's all of these implications that can play out beyond just who's babysitting and who's going the lawn. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think I've ever really thought so deeply about this issue, right? Thinking about like, oh, I was babysitting <laughs> when I was, you know, a teenager. And now what did that maybe mean for my career trajectory? And then what will that mean for me in retirement with the money that I'm, I'm getting? Um, so it really is this entire kind of like life course perspective um, that again, it seems natural, maybe and unproblematic, but indeed we see how it's leading to these unequal outcomes um, throughout the different stages of our lives. I mean, when you share that today's kind of young people have this same attachment to the, you know, male breadwinner and the uh female homemaker, it's really shocking. You know, in general, we think of younger people as having kind of these more, I guess, egalitarian or equitable or advanced (laughs) ideas of gender, but also a lot of other kind of more um, open ideas um, in general. And what you're saying is that might not be the case. I know, which is depressing. And there's two things. When, when Dr. Pepin and I were thinking about these results and trying to understand why this, why this might be, like, how do we explain this? We, we kind of had two, two conclusions. Um, one is, is this really a reflection of economic precarity? Mm-hmm. And when we talk about gender justice and gender equality, I think it's equally important to talk about economic justice and economic mobility and economic equality because Part of the reason we think that maybe it's become acceptable for women to enter the workforce is because family needs families need two incomes to make end meets and yeah. ends meet. Um, and so if you need two families, two incomes in order to survive as a family, that might be more about an economic story than it is about an underlying desire for women to kind of have this career and be in the workforce. Um, and I think we see this when we start looking at racial differences. So Black families um, have long had to have two parents in the workforce because mm-hmm. of the racialized history of the labor market. Um, and because of that, have, have had different division of labor arrangements. Um, so there's been some work that looks at Black women who have this integrated mother approach versus white women who are more often in this kind of traditional homemaker approach. So I think there's some... Um, some things we can think about in terms of, is this really a story about economics? And I think when we think about young people, there's a lot of hand-wringing about millennials and Generation Z who Mm -hmm. like their luxurious avocado toast. And if they just would (laughs) not buy so much avocado toast, you know, would they really be better off? And I 
think um, as sociologists, we can, we can think about the fact that housing costs are going up. Many young people have staggering amounts of student loan debt. It's, it's truly much harder to advance economically in our current society. And so is this really a story then about young people really just struggling to make ends meet um, and less about specific views about gender? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the other piece I would say about that is when, um, gosh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I had a second point. It's okay. I'll come, I'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it'll come back to you. Um, but let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to hear more about how we see both the gender role piece of it and the economic piece of it playing out um, during COVID-19. Um, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Brittany Dernberger. So before the break, you were just mentioning how, you know, how there might be this kind of tension um, between kind of the economic needs of family life or just living <laughs> in society now um, versus this commitment to kind of traditional gender roles, right? So one might be impacting the other or one might even be obscuring you know, the other. And it just made me think about um, one of the headlines that really stuck out to me um, last year um, and, you know, during COVID, and of course, COVID is ongoing, um, but was the amount of mothers who dropped out of the workforce. Um, so a survey showed that between February and August, mothers of children 12 years old and younger lost 2.2 million jobs compared to 870,000 jobs lost among fathers. So what is this telling us? Oh, yes. Those headlines have been equally grabbing my attention um, yes. in, a, in a depressing way about what does this mean. So I think that this, this paints, paints to a picture of, of underlying gender inequality in the sense that women and, and mothers specifically are still the ones who are expected to take on childcare, homeschooling, on, you know, supervising online learning when other institutions aren't available. So when schools close, you know, someone needs to step in to fill that gap. And I think what COVID-19 has showed is that the people who stepped in to fill that gap were women. And there's been some great journalism on this. I read one article that was had done some covering some research that had been done about how even where people work in a house. So in families with kids, fathers were more likely to be working from home in a little home office or at least a little alcove or closet, you know, what people are all making do however they can right now. It was, it was a protected separate space, whereas mothers were more likely to be working from the dining room table or the kitchen counter where they're more likely to be interrupted by their kids. So even just these like spatial elements of, of mothers have really taken on this role. And, and there's been, um, outcomes, as you mentioned in, in how you set this up around employment. Um, there was some recent research by sociologist um, Dr. Caitlin Colley, Collins and some colleagues who've shown that in the first several months of the pandemic, mothers reduced their work hours four to, four to five times more than fathers. Wow. And because of that, the gender gap in work hours had grown by 20 to 50%. So I think this is going to, what I'm really curious about is what does this look like post-pandemic? Mm. Will these women be returning to the workforce? 
And if so, what does that look like? We, we know from employment research that time out of the labor market can be scarring mm -hmm. in terms of lower wages later on, less prestigious jobs or time lost on kind of a career progression ladder. And so I'm curious about what are the long-term impacts of this as women choose to come back? Or is this, does this become kind of a shift where we really see a permanent consequence of fewer women in the labor market? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely wondering, like, as you mentioned, what does it mean when, if and when mothers return to the workforce for the reasons that you just mentioned? And I was even thinking about um, in conversations that were happening among scholars, right, acknowledging that a lot of mothers were taking on the role of teacher at home, right, to their kids or just taking on more of those household duties and are in the, you know, for folks who work at universities, you know, are the hiring and promotion kind of committees taking that into consideration, right? That mothers are doing, you know, two and three jobs, right? So the job that they're paid for in the workforce and then the jobs at home, whether it's childcare or other household duties and how that's impacting mother's productivity, even if they are, you know, still trying to juggle those multiple kind of job titles um, and what that may even look like. So again, think about economic in impact for a personal, you know, person's tra trajectory. What does that look like if you don't get the promotion? Because during COVID, you weren't you know, producing, right? As ridiculous as that may sound, you know, who is kind of taking on those costs? Um, and we see mothers, right, as the ones that are taking on that cost. Mothers are taking on the cost. And I'm, I'm also curious about, I think a lot of the narrative in the news about this issue has been women who opted out mm -hmm. of the workforce because they were making choices for, to, whether it's children or parents or, you know, care, caregiving responsibilities generally. But I, I read something else that 11 million jobs held by women disappeared between February and May of 2020. Wow. 11 million jobs. And so I think sometimes when we look at percentage point differences of the labor market, you know, it's like with three women's labor market participation is like 3% down from this time last year, for mm -hmm. example. And I think as, as someone with numbers, it's like, oh, 3%, like, okay, oh, 3%. But you think about what that, what that translates to in terms of millions of people, millions of jobs. And so for some reason, that statistic struck me differently of like 11 million jobs. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that women disproportionately work in a lot of hospitality and service industries that have been really decimated by the pandemic and, and closures for public health reasons. Um, so I'm, I'm also very curious about the women who were pushed out and not did not necessarily opt out of work and relatedly essential workers. I mean, so there are some women who cannot stay home. And yeah. so I think about single parent households or those who maybe two parents who work in essential industries, not everyone has the option to work from home. And so what does that mean for them? Um, and, and what is, how does childcare fit into that picture? Yeah, absolutely. I think childcare is this major piece. And to bring it back to what you said previously, you know, your after school job as a young person was, you know, babysitting. And why was that a $5 an hour job versus the lawn care, which was, you know, $20 for a, a yard and obviously not taking multiple hours, right, for that to get done. But I think it speaks to that piece of, you know, who is taking care, you know, of our children? Why do we devalue that? 
Um, and, you know, what are those impacts, right? And we see that right now with, you know, childcare obviously being pretty hard to come by um, due to, you know, the circumstances that we're in, but how does that then impact, you know, households and thinking about that economic stability, if there is even any stability to be had, you know, at this point. Exactly. And I, I think it goes in multiple directions. So childcare workers are terribly underpaid given the really important work they do. And childcare is really expensive. And so how do, how do we look at that from both sides? I think about, so my sister lives in the Chicago area and has three kids under the age of five. Oh. And the cost for her to put them in full child full-time childcare would mean that she needs to make a pretty high income in order to make that math work. Otherwise she'd be literally losing money by working, which is counterintuitive to how we, how we think about getting paid for our labor. Um, and so I think definitely affordable childcare is an important piece of this conversation. And not just for women who are maybe at the lower end of the labor market. I, for a different research project, was interviewing some people who are married to someone serving in the military, so military spouses. And I was talking to a woman who's a doctor, a medical doctor, and she had recently had a baby and was saying just lack of, lack of childcare, not even lack of affordable childcare, but just literally finding someone in this pandemic environment finding a center or a nanny or whoever who could care for her infant was like logistically really difficult in the area of the country she lived in. And so she didn't know if she was going to be able to return to her job because she could not find childcare. And so I think this is just a really important issue that has, has, is not new. Affordable childcare has been an ongoing issue, uh, but I think the pandemic has really highlighted some of the cracks in our system related to it. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I'm thinking about another headline that was so disturbing um, that talked about, you know, a high achieving woman who was the breadwinner in her family and how her husband really could not manage to juggle or figure out the childcare responsibilities and was basically like, you need to, you need to do this. Right. And I was so shocked because I'm like, we're in an entire pandemic. <laughs> like, can't you figure it out? Like your wife is the one who luckily still has a job and, you know, has been the highest earner in the family. Um, but what is it about men and taking on these childcare responsibilities? Like what, what is the deal there? Yes, that is such a good point. So I, I think when we talk about gender equity, and gender roles, we are often focused on changes in women's behavior and changes in attitudes about women. And you bring up such a good point about continued gender progress depends on men taking on behaviors historically seen as feminine, which includes childcare, includes who's gonna pack the lunches, who's gonna make dinner, who's gonna clean up after dinner, who's gonna help with bedtime, you know, all those things that, that go into a day-to-day -day life for a family. And that's where we've really seen the gap. I mean, men, if you, if you look at time use studies, you know, men today do spend more time with their kids than men a generation or two ago. So there's been some movement, but it's not been to the level that we've reached parity in terms of men and women equally sharing housework, childcare responsibilities. And so I think that's a big gap that we need to continue emphasizing as we think about how do we make change going forward is how do we bring men into this conversation 
and, and set up structures and systems where men are taking on some of those roles. Mm-hmm. Are there um, certain household activities that we see men are more likely to do or have increased their time doing? So that's interesting. When I, so housework studies and time use studies show that men are more likely to do outside jobs, which just <laughs> goes back to the babysitting lawn mowing example from our youth. Um, so men are more likely to take on the role of taking out the trash, mowing the lawn, shoveling the driveway when it snows. Women are more likely to do a lot of the day-to-day inside activities. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is if you think about the prioritization and time pressure on those activities, it often doesn't matter whether you mow the lawn on Thursday afternoon or Friday morning or Saturday afternoon. There's flexibility in, in when that chore can happen. Mm-hmm. Women are more likely to take on these roles that like everyone's hungry. We need dinner. Like dinner must be made now, you know, or like, <laughs> there's an uprising. Um, and so women often have these these day to day jobs that are integral to people being fed and clothed and getting out the door or doing their work for the day. Um, and so I always find that interesting of kind of the, the pressure and priority of like, if you can't get to the lawn today, probably it doesn't matter, but your children need to eat today. And so there's just a differing level of importance there. Mm-hmm. So women are doing those immediate tasks, those high priority immediate tasks, and men are kind of doing the tasks that are important and that need to be done, but have more flexibility. <laughs> Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and I, it just, I mean, and that has existed for generations. And so that's where I think that this is where there hasn't been much change, unfortunately. And I will say growing up um, when I was about 10, my parents had both worked full time and I have, I have three younger sisters. And when I was about 10, my dad actually quit his job to be a stay at home dad. Ooh. And I grew up in West Michigan, which is a pretty conservative, homogenous area of the country. And especially like 20 years ago, there were very few stay-at-home dads. That was a really rare event. And so I I can remember through the vantage point of being a kid at the time, my parents grappling with some of this. And I can remember even as a middle schooler, the fact that like my dad came to field trips um, as a chaperone, or my dad was the one who picked me up from soccer practice. And that was such an anomaly at the time. Like for all of my friends, it was their mothers who were doing those activities. And so I think growing up, I I was really fortunate to have different examples of what that kind of gendered division of labor can look like, but that's rare. And unfortunately there has really not been much change overall. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm just thinking again about what you said previously about this difference between what we see in the public sphere as far as attitudes or what people say, you know, they support and they rally around and that's great. Um, And then what's actually happening in the private sphere in, in this case, in this breakdown of household, you know, household duties. And I'm just wondering, is this something that people can negotiate in their, you know, own personal relationships, or is it just kind of people fall into these roles, right? Again, this quote, quote, idea of quote unquote natural, right? Like how, how do people decide who is going to do what once they decide to cohabitate or marry or whatever? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's definitely something people can negotiate. What I find really depressing is that a lot of couples when before they have children 
are, are pretty equitable in their time use or more equitable in terms of dividing up chores. And even couples that express really gender egalitarian, gender equitable views about like, hey, we wanna equally divide how we how we've like manage our house basically, um, change when they have kids. So there's something about having children that really throws a shock into, into a household um, that it seems like even with the best intentions, things go awry in terms of gender equity. And that's where I think we, we, we need to know more about what, to your point, what's happening behind those closed doors. I know that some research shows that even people who express those really gender egalitarian preferences still have fallback plans that are very gendered. So for example, they'll say like, oh, we, we both want to have careers and we both, and obviously in this case, we're talking about heterosexual couples, but we both want to have careers. We both want to equally share responsibilities at home. But if that's not possible, the mother will go to part-time work or the <laughs> mother will stay home. And so it's like this some sort of underlying belief. I mean, the other piece of this is why it's important to think about pay equity because men make more money than women overall on average. And so a, a random couple who's, who's negotiating this might say whoever has the higher income is probably the person who should focus on work outside the home, earning that income for the family. And so I think pay equity is, is, is not unimportant here. It's something we need to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, it, you were just making me think about um, when couples, someone gets a job and they have to move, like it requires relocating, right? Like whose job is worth relocating for or who is going to make the concession to relocate? Um, it seems like, again, just following what you said, men, you know, are typically earning more. So if they get a job, it's, you know, the woman who's going to be the trailing spouse versus the man, you know, uprooting his career, right? Which we typically see of the man in his career uprooting his to follow a wife in her career dreams, right? Exactly. Which, which to go full circle to how you started um, our conversation is part of the reason I'm so excited about Vice President Harris, because here's an example <laughs> of a woman really pursuing her career. And, and the husband is the tag along spouse in this case, who's, who's uprooting his career to support her in her journey. I'm also on a personal level, very excited uh, that they don't share the last, the same last name. Um, Cause I think these are just small examples of what modern relationships can look like in ways that are more equitable than we often see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just a great model um, for people who are thinking about maybe non-traditional, if you want to call it that, non-traditional kind of setups, right? So we have this great example of a very high-powered, high-achieving woman and her trailing spouse, right? Um, and again, just thinking about them getting married, you know, later in life and, you know, their blended family and keeping of the last name, right? So different models where people can say, hey, this is a template, right? That I'm not the only one, right? Um, which again, like thinking about your experience with your dad probably being the only dad, that, you know, uh, but here we have a very public example that could potentially impact, you know, the private, right, sphere, how we see it playing out in people's lives. Definitely, definitely. And the other thing I would add is that we have other examples of this. So LGBT couples often do not fit in the same heteronormative setup of the man being the main breadwinner, the woman taking on most of the, the home 
and children responsibilities. And so it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be unequal, right? We, we have examples of how it can not be, um, how it can be equitable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Brittany Dernberger, a sociologist whose work focuses on gender, jobs, and economic inequality. And, you know, we kind of ended that before the break talking about there are potential other ways that we could be doing these things, right? We could have more equitable um, kind of private sphere, uh, right? And we could have more equitable in the public sphere, right, as well. So based on what you know from your research, what are some maybe concrete ways that we could be kind of moving towards equity? Yeah, I think early childhood education, childcare is really important. And I know we talked about that briefly earlier, but the pandemic has just made that issue so paramount. And I think, you know, we could bolster the pay of childcare workers, which would be one. But as we talked about earlier, a big part of this is that afford affordability of childcare for parents. And so I think a more traditional way to look at it would be how can we have, you know, widespread subsidized affordable childcare available for people. But I think there's also some innovative ways we could think about childcare. So I, one of the articles I read during um, the pandemic was about these two mothers who both were single parents um, and were good friends and both had kids. And throughout the pandemic essentially pooled childcare. And so like one, one would watch all the kids while the other ran to the grocery store, or went to work and they would kind of um, switch back and forth. And so, I mean, those are some kind of historic cooperative models that I think we could think about as communities returning to, um, there's a whole time sharing movement that that seemed like it was getting traction a while ago. I haven't heard as much about it recently, but this idea of a time bank where someone could say, I'm going to give, you know, two hours of piano lessons and in exchange, you're going to spend an hour weeding my garden or, you know, like just kind of these different different exchanges thinking about people's strengths and skills and resources and how do we collectively pool these in a way that then can be an exchange where you get something you don't have but something you need. And so I think, um, you know, there are childcare models like that where you kind of collectively pool hours and parents take take turns or could hire a, a staff member, take turns taking care of the kids and pool that cost. So I think we really need to think about that. Um, mm-hmm. As we think historically, you know, World War II was an event that really pushed a lot of women into the workforce for the first time because yeah. someone had to kind of keep the, the manufacturing going to produce all of these goods and, and services that we needed during the war. And I've been thinking about that as it relates to COVID-19 pushing so many women out. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think we really need to be mindful of what are, what are the opportunities this pandemic provides to really rethink some of our policies and processes and ways, ways we work and ways we live in a way that could address some of these issues. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I love this idea of returning to some of those community ca- communities of care or caring communities um, or those models that were really the bedrock of society um, at different points, right? I think we've become very um, individualized, right? Um, but we see, especially in times of kind of crisis or mass upheaval, the importance of having um, the social support in those communities of care. And I think that's such a great idea to be able to kind of pool resources, uh, but also to be able to just strengthen our own social ties of support, which may not only be kind of practical or tangible, but also those emotional support, uh, which I think we've seen the importance of um, throughout, you know, last year, and I'm sure for, you know, this new year as well, the importance of having strong emotional ties and emotional support systems. And I think pooling these resources or creating those communities kind of takes care, you know, of both. Um, I'm also wondering, because, you know, you mentioned, you know, we often think about gender equity in terms of policy changes, uh, but we know that those aren't sufficient, right? So yes, we do need um, the different maybe parental leave policies, or we do need to be thinking about um, pay and pay equity, uh, but we also have kind of the stickiness of attitudes. Um, And so we know that we can't, in this case, it's not just policy alone, but it's also the attitudes. So what can we do? Or is there any way for us to positively impact attitudes towards kind of gender, gender roles, gender relations? Yes, the sticky attitudes are so pervasive. I wish I had um, a magic (laughs) wand and could just kind of shift a lot of cultural thinking about this. I don't know that there's one single thing we can do, but Mm -hmm. I think the example of Vice President Harris we were talking about earlier, seeing more women in these roles and seeing how they're navigating work and family in perhaps different ways than the traditional model is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know, I think this question of like, how do we shift these underlying gender attitudes is so, such a big question. I, my personal um, bandwagon is that it starts really young. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if I was in charge, <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. would, we would really break down this gender binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's important for people who are gender queer and gender non-conforming. But it's also important for people who, who do fit in the historical, traditional man-woman binary, because if we break down, break down those boundaries, I think then these gender roles become less rigid. And if they're less rigid, then we have more flexibility in all the ways we've been talking about of having more gender equality. So I would love to live in a world where gender is about as important as eye color. Like it's maybe something you notice about someone. It's maybe noted, I think it says like I, I, or on your driver's license, like maybe it's noted like, okay, gender, but it does not determine the type of work you do, how you divide your labor at home. It doesn't have this predictive nature that determines so much of your life. I think if we could get to a point where, where gender was a factor, but not this, this big factor, 
that would be a world I'd be really excited to live in. Yes, I think that would be a world we would all be excited to live in. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, like what does that look like in practice if we're starting with young people, um, children, right? Our most important resource and kind of rethinking or reteaching, right? Um, And what that looks like. So I was thinking about even the... um, types of children's books, right? And because there we see the gender roles um, being kind of established, if not already in the household, definitely reinforced through children's books or um, even, you know, our beloved Disney movies or, you know, other types of kind of um, TV, film, movies, books that are geared towards children. And what are those stories telling us? Completely. Toys, books, children. And I would even say what happens in the womb. I mean, it's become such a craze in the last 10 years to have these gender reveal parties where parents will like, you know, bake a cake or cupcakes or balloons or have some sort of way of like this pink and blue. um, What is the, what is the gender of the child Um, that I just think it it just sets it up from a time that before children are even born, they're put in this box of, of gender and on the surface, you might say like, oh, pink, blue, who cares? That, you know, that doesn't mean anything. But as we've been talking about during this conversation, there's all of these ways from a very young age, children get funneled into these gendered pathways that really do have long-term consequences. And so I would say, yes, from, from the very beginning, can we be thinking in ways that are gender inclusive and not so prescriptive about being a girl means this and being a boy means that? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought up the gender reveals <laughs> uh, because, I mean, it kind of blows my mind and I know it's kind of a fairly newer phenomenon, right, of all these very extravagant um, gender reveals. And I'm wondering, is the kind of um, creation or the origins of these gender reveals, like, is that some sort of backlash towards even maybe some of the shifts in more egalitarianism um, that we may see, or even some of the kind of non-conforming gender, you know, roles or ways that we've seen, like, is this some sort of, like, disciplining back into more rigid, you know, traditional gender roles? That is such a good point. I think it definitely could be. And I think back to there's this wonderful essay that if you Google it, you can find it. It's called A Child Called X that it was originally published in Miss Magazine in 1973, but it is still so relevant today. And it's about how these parents try and raise a child called X um, and all the things they try and do to get out of this, this gender conformity in terms of the clothes X wears, the friends they play with, the toys they have, what happens at school when the teacher says boys get in this line, girls get in this line, what line does X go in? And so it's this short essay, but it walks through all of these things. And I think to your point, change can be uncomfortable and people don't always like change and there can be a motivation to maintain the status quo. And I think that's an excellent question. Are gender reveal parties a response to to more gender inclusion and and breaking down the binary? Yeah, I mean, even just thinking about that article, which I'll definitely have to Google. I mean, I think it just really goes back to your point of thinking about how much um, throughout the life course really supports 
both the creation of this gender binary, but then also thinking about this, the gender in, gender inequality and gender roles, right? So starting, you know, in the womb, <laughs> in this case, in the womb with the gender reveals, but then also, you know, throughout school, throughout, you know, those after school jobs or those summer jobs, and then kind of those longer term consequences of these things that maybe don't seem so problematic, you know, at one point, um, but really lead to these very disparate outcomes. Um, so if you could leave us with kind of like one thing for us to think about, I know we've covered a lot of ground today on this very important topic, uh, but if you'd like to leave us with any final thoughts, what would they be? I think when we think about gender equity, we need to remember to keep economic equality also in mind, and I that's been a theme throughout our conversation today, but especially as we think about the pandemic and hopefully now in a new year, post-pandemic, we can hope, um, there's a lot of people who are really struggling financially. And I think we can't, we can't talk about gender without this economic piece, especially when we talk about work and family and, and how gender attitudes play out. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Durenberger. I've learned so much from our conversation today. Thank you again for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know about you, but I have learned so much today from my chat with Dr. Brittany Dernberger. And you know, one thing that really stood out to me was this idea between um, public sphere and private sphere and our gender attitudes, right, in those two different places and what that might look like in practice. And so I know we may not be able individually to, you know, change policy or uh, make some of these bigger, broader structural changes, but we all, all are able to make changes within the private sphere of our own homes and families. And what does that look like if we were to decide to take more gender egalitarian roles or approaches to our home life, to our division of household labor, to the division of child care, child rearing responsibilities in our own household. And I love how Dr. Dernberger said, you know, we can always negotiate, uh, negotiate these things. So I just want to encourage you, hey, if you are cohabitating, you know, married, you know, whatever the case may be, that you can negotiate those household duties or those childcare duties, or even this might be a conversation that you want to, you know, bring up in your dating life as well. I'm just going to let you know right now that I'm going, going to bring up this conversation <laughs> with my my boyfriend and talk about division of household labor and we'll see you know what he has to say y'all you are listening to let's grab coffee on wyxr 91.7 fm and you know every saturday morning i like to leave you with a positive note and since we are in the beginning of a brand new year i want to leave you with this quote it says you are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. So here's to dreaming new dreams in 2021. Y'all, I hope you join me again next Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time here on 91.7 FM. And remember, you can always tune in online or catch up on previous shows on wyxr.org. See you all next Saturday.